Well, it's nice to see you here on this uh, gray and gloomy day outside. You've brought the sunshine in here, and, and we are grateful. If you're uh, a guest with us today, we're delighted that you've come. And uh, please, today's the only day you get to be a guest. Next week, you're home folk, okay? And uh, if you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we, uh, we welcome you as well. Uh, I don't know about you, but the, the video that just ran a minute ago just is such an encouragement uh, to me uh, to see how older youth as well as adults are pouring into the lives of our teens and, and young people around here, mentoring them and sharing with them and, and helping them. By the way, that doesn't happen, you know, accidentally, okay? Uh, and, and there's always a need for more people to join in if, if you would love to do that, if if you have a passion for that, uh, please let us know. We will want to plug you into the right places because that makes such a difference uh, for the future. Uh, uh, just to let you know what kind of a difference it makes, uh, Matthew uh, Slaughter, who came up here and did our communion meditation this morning, he is winding up his senior year in high school. Um, and such poise and such delivery. Uh, I look at Matthew and I marvel and I am grateful that uh, I can see the future of the kingdom of God in really good hands. And Matthew is just one of scores of teenagers that we have here at Sherwood Oaks who are of the same awesome caliber because you have been pouring into their lives. And so I'm grateful for what you're doing. And I want you to keep doing what you're doing. Because that's exactly the theme of our of our message this morning. We're in this series, Walk Like Jesus, but we're going to take a look at this concept of investing uh, in a few. When I was a kid, um, elementary age, uh, my home preacher at that time was a, was a man by the name of Lawrence Elsoff. And uh, he would often pick up several of us on Saturday mornings and he would take us to the church building and he would teach us a Bible lesson and then he would uh, often have candy in his pockets and, and share that with us as well. Now, I'll be honest with you. Be, be really honest with you. I, that's not what I wanted to do on Saturday morning. But, but, but I went. What's more, Brother Elsoff, as we called him, was so old I thought he might not live to next week's lesson. I was just that concerned. I figured up this week that at the time he was probably a couple years younger than I am right now. <laughs> that was a real kick in the teeth uh, this week when I figured that one out. <laughs> I don't remember any lesson he taught. I couldn't point out and say, oh, on this Saturday, we, I can't remember anything like that. But I do remember, now with deep gratitude, his investment in my life. The guidelines of financial investing suggest that you shouldn't invest everything that you have into one savings instrument. In other words, don't put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Nor should your finances be spread so thin that you can't manage what you have. Financial experts recommend a well-diversified but manageable portfolio in planning for your future. Well, centuries before mutual funds and their managers, Jesus was doing the similar things with people. He was modeling the same principles with people. Now, it is true, Jesus came to redeem all of humanity. That's a huge picture. 
And literally thousands of people were transformed by his preaching and his teaching. We have no idea the multitudes of lives that he touched with his messages and his miracles. But when it came to preparing for the future of the kingdom of God, Jesus invested the bulk of his time and his energy into a diversified few. Twelve, to be exact. The year was 1956, and Wilson Greatbatch was serving as an assistant professor in electrical engineering at the University of Buffalo. He was working on a device for the chronic chronic disease research institute that would help measure heart rhythm while building the prototype he reached into a box of resistors for a resistor to complete the circuitry and the one he picked was probably not the one that most engineers would pick it it seemed to be an odd fit for what he was working on used it anyway and it didn't work as it was intended to work but he noted that it, it, the, the electrical pulses that were coming from what he had just put together mimicked that of a heartbeat, heart rhythm. Some of you are here alive this morning because of Wilson Greatbatch. That oddly picked, poorly chosen, if as some would say, resistor led the way to what we call a pacemaker. The American Heart Association says that a half a million pacemakers are implanted in people's bodies every year. Wilson Greatbatch went on to develop a 10-year lithium battery for those pacemakers. And by the time he died in the year 2011, he had more than 325 patents to his name. But none greater, none greater than the one that changed the heart of humanity. When Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30, he chose 12 men to fill the unique role as his apostles. Out of a nation full of leaders, he happened to pick men that most would have viewed as a poor fit for the job. But what he did with them was nothing short of miraculous and amazing. 11 of those 12 men were transformed by their time with Jesus, and they gave themselves sacrificially to change the heart of humanity forever. And we here this morning are alive spiritually because of his unusual choice of leadership. In our church family alone, there will be some 3,000 that will gather at our campuses who are still being impacted by what these 12 men said, wrote, and did as a band of brothers. Jesus invested in a few And that few changed the world. Now, we have more than one list of the apostles. Now, the apostles started out as disciples. There were a lot of disciples. A disciple is a learning follower. And he pared that down to these 12 who we call the apostles. And you can read the list in the the various places in Scripture. I'm going to read out Luke's gospel this morning. And I want you to listen to what Luke writes in, in chapter 6, verse 12. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Spent the night praying. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. By the way, the word apostle means one who is sent with a mission. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was also called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
I think it's helpful to note when we read the lists that these men have more than one name. They're, they're called by sometimes two or three different names. Simon was also called Peter, as you know. Uh, Judas, not the betrayer Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas is also called Labius and called Thaddeus in some of the other lists. Bartholomew is most likely Nathaniel. And of course, my favorite Thomas, uh, that's the name in Aramaic. Didymus is his name in Greek, and he was known by both. It's also likely that you need to know that several of the apostles were, were, were related. Uh, not only related to each other, but probably related to Jesus himself. James and John were brothers, and they were likely cousins of Jesus on his mother's side. New Testament scholar Alfred Edersheim suggests that James the Less, Simon the Zealot, and Thaddeus appear to be brothers, and that they may have been cousins of Jesus on Joseph's side, his earthly father's side. Judas Iscariot, the single apostle who was not faithful to Jesus, seems to be the outsider, the only apostle that wasn't from the region of Galilee. He alone was from Judea. You say, well, why 12? Why, why, why 12 men? Well, it could be the fact that 12 is a rather significant number in Scripture. There were 12 tribes that became the nation of Israel. There were 12 loaves of bread that sat on the table that was in the temple of God. 12 spies went into the land of Canaan to check it out before they went in to receive the promised land. There were 12 basketfuls of leftovers when Jesus fed the 5,000. In heaven, there are 12 gates. There are 12 layers to the walls made of precious stones. And the tree of life produces 12 crops of fruit. 12 is a significant number. But I also believe that 12 is a practical number. 12 makes just the right size group. Large enough to be substantial, but not so large that it is unruly. It's just a good size group. If you watch that video, you saw kids and teens sitting around tables. I didn't count, but there are approximately 12 in those groups because it's just such a good size. So how did Jesus choose these men? Well, to begin with, he spent the night in prayer. Uh, if you've got a big decision in the morning, what's our advice? Get a good night's rest. You've got a big decision in the morning. What would Jesus' advice be? Pray about it. you got a big decision in the morning. Now, we, we ought to learn something from that. I'm, I'm not discounting rest. Uh, as a matter of fact, rest is incredibly important. If you've got a big decision in the morning, you better get some good physical rest because if you're tired, you're not going to make a good choice. But if you don't pray, you're probably not going to make a good choice either. I'm not suggesting that you pull an all-night prayer session. Maybe that's what you need to do. But, but I am saying that prayer must be foundational to any important decision that we make. When's the last time you prayed for someone and how you could invest in that someone? Jesus also chose ordinary people. He did not choose celebrity types. Um, I, I do think there was a mixture of those who did fairly well economically and those who probably had very little. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a very, it seemed like, successful fishing business. The scriptures would indicate that Peter had two homes, one in Capernaum and one in Bethsaida. So that, that, that suggests he was doing fairly well economically. Matthew was a tax collector at that day and time, and the tax collectors, they always did well. Some of the others may not have done so well. He chose, at times, polar opposites. 
Simon the Zealot was a part of a revolutionary band of assassins called Zealots. Their whole sworn duty was to kill Roman soldiers and any Jew that had worked for the Romans, like Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was considered a traitor by the Jewish people. So you got Simon the Zealot, and you've got Matthew the tax collector among the 12. I bet that made for some really interesting political discussions around the dinner table. What do you think? I mean, who would do that? Who in their right mind would pick two people like this? I mean, that's like picking somebody from ISIS who's a jihadist and somebody from Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, to be on the same benevolent team. I mean, come on. But Jesus made it work. Jesus made it work because their focus was on him. I was fascinated. When we were in Israel, our our, uh, guide was Jewish. Our our bus driver was Palestinian. And, And there was harmony. Uh, among all of us. It, it, it can happen. I'm convinced it happens best through Jesus Christ. You see, both, when both Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector came to know Jesus, they worked side by side, they ate side by side, they listened side by side, they died side by side. In the, in the spread of the gospel, and, and what their political philosophies were were set aside. What their allegiances had been were set aside so that they could focus on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You and I will never know true peace until we know the Prince of Peace, which is why I believe the world will never know peace because we cannot unite around Jesus Christ. If we could, it would change the world. It changed these 12, and these 12 changed the world as they knew it, but, but only will you find that harmony and peace in him. I I like how Paul puts it to the Christians in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Oh, it's hard to invest in others when you're not at peace with yourself and you're not at peace with the Lord and you're not at peace with others around you. Nobody really wants to listen to you. So if you're going to invest in others, start with being at peace with the, the Savior and with yourself. And and I like the fact that Jesus didn't appoint a successor. He chose a team. The fact that these men from multiple backgrounds and philosophical views worked together, served together, ate together, and wrote about the life of Christ gives credibility to the New Testament. Here's the deal. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to say, well, there's differences here. That one tells the story this way and another one tells the story slightly differently. Of course, they're, they're writing out of their personalities. They're writing out of their experience. They're writing about the things that impacted them. That gives credibility. When you have a religious writing that is done by just one person, you're, you're a bit suspect. Well, how do we know this is true? But when you've got multiple people writing about the experience from different viewpoints and they're telling the same story, it gives credibility to what we believe about Jesus Christ. And at times among this 12, Jesus narrowed his focus to the three, Peter, James, and John. It was only Peter, James, and John that were with him when he he raised the daughter of Jairus. It was only Peter, James, and John when Jesus experienced the transfiguration on the mountaintop. It was only Peter, James, and John that were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray close by. You see, Jesus was training them, and they became great leaders in the early church. James was the first leader of the church. He was also the first martyr among the apostles, the first of the apostles to die. Peter, of course, was the great preacher on Pentecost and led the church in so many awesome ways. John, the brother of James, was the last one of the apostles to die, also a great leader in the church. And then there were times when Jesus poured himself into the few one at a time. 
face to face. You cannot read the scriptures and, and not be moved by the way Jesus interacted with individual people and how he, well, made you feel at any one moment that you were the sole focus of his life. Uh, for instance, a groom had done a poor job of preparing for his wedding feast, sorely underestimated the amount of wine that would be needed for the celebration, and to spare him lasting embarrassment, Jesus turned six large stone crocks of water into the best wine ever. And you say, yeah, it was just a wedding reception. Yeah, but Jesus was touched by moments like that. His compassion moved in so many ways. <clears throat> when we were in Israel, we visited Cana, where this wedding feast had taken place and where the miracle, Jesus' first miracle had taken place. And, 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 you know, gazillions of years ago, they built church buildings over every sacred site where they thought something happened. Of course, there was a church building there built over the site where they think the house was, where the wedding was taking place, where Jesus turned the water into wine. I don't know if it was or if it, or if it is, but, but there's a building there. And so on our way, as we were walking to the church building to see it, there were signs all over the place. Cane of wine available here. Get the best cane of wine here. And I'm thinking, okay, either those six crocs have lasted a long time or people are cashing in on the compassion of Christ. I, uh, I've often wondered, did that bride and groom become disciples of Jesus for what he did at their reception? And of course you have Nicodemus, this, this guy who's scared to death of being seen with Jesus, comes to Jesus at night with sincere questions. Now I'm here to tell you, if you've got sincere questions, I'm not going to be at my best late at night. You just need to know that. My mind does not work sharply, you know, late at night. But Jesus seems to be energized with this conversation. And oh my goodness, folks, the words that come out of this conversation that John records in chapter 3 are words that we treasure Wow, the one-on-one the, the -on -one with Nicodemus leads, leaves us with words like this. You must be born again. Or as we talked a couple weeks ago, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Or this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen. Do you realize what we would have missed without this conversation? Jesus poured himself into Nicodemus. By the way, Nicodemus eventually became a daylight disciple. And sometimes that one-on-one -on -one with Jesus was, well, with one that was overlooked or ignored by society. Do you remember the woman who'd spent all of her money on trying to find a cure for the disease in her body? And Jesus was in town that day and she knew the crowd was huge and she shouldn't really be out there. But she thought if she could just touch the hem of his garment, maybe. No, not maybe. That would be sufficient. She'd be healed. When we were in Magdala, the, the hometown that they've just discovered in the last few years of Mary Magdalene, uh, in the church that was built there, there is this beautiful, intriguing picture of, of dusty feet and one believing female hand that reaches to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. I, I just stared at that picture, thinking of the faith behind it. You can, you can see in the artist's conception that spark right there as she touches that brought healing to her body. Don't you know, she was a follower of Jesus. 
And what about the dreaded Samaritan woman at the well whose sordid life had robbed her of any social contact? Jesus invested time and words of hope in her, and she became an evangelist to her entire community. Or how about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus to be stoned for her sin? Jesus confronted her accusers with the classic line, let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone and suddenly the trial is over before it had a chance to begin. As the stones dropped to the ground from the unclenched accuser's fingers, the woman's life was spared and she was given a second chance by Jesus who told her, go and sin no more. And who could forget the displaced Roman officer whose servant Jesus healed with the word? Or the demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs in that heathen Jew-hating, pork-eating Gentile area known as the Decapolis? Their areas were changed because of that one-on-one. And as Jesus passed through Jericho for the very last time, he was headed to Jerusalem where he would face the cross. He's walking down the street and he looks up and there's this this little guy, Zacchaeus, who couldn't see over the crowd, up in the sycamore tree, wanting so desperately to see Jesus, hated by everybody because he was a tax collector like Matthew. And Jesus, among the crowd, stops. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. And then Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for lunch. Can you imagine The most hated guy in Jericho gets to take Jesus home and eat. And this little man becomes a big philanthropist giving away so much of his his wealth. And this man becomes an honest tax collector, a rarity in that day. And he becomes an ardent follower of Jesus one-on-one. And before Jesus could get out of Jericho, blind Bartimaeus hollers from the roadside, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And finally the crowd, trying to hush him up, Jesus stops and says, come on over, Bartimaeus. Do you you realize how hard it would be? You're sitting on the side of the road. The road is full of people, and you have to leave behind your personal possessions, all that you've got in this world, and blindly grope your way through the crowd to make it in front of Jesus. Bartimaeus gets there as quick as he can, and Jesus heals him. Brings sight to those blind eyes. Now, normally, a blind beggar would not be named in Scripture. Unless, of course, unless, of course, the name Bartimaeus would have been known to the ancient church because he became a, a tremendous follower and servant of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe happened. It was his last opportunity. Jesus would never be back. He was going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And wow, what a moment. I could go on. That's just scratching the surface of the one-on-one investment that Jesus made in the lives of people that changed them forever. So what can we learn from the way that Jesus invested in others? Well, quickly, invest creatively. Okay, invest your time, your energy creatively. The passing of time has not changed the message, but the methods by which that message is communicated must remain fluid. I doubt there's a soul in the room here this morning that thinks we ought to change the message of Jesus I mean, it is, it is life-changing as it stands. But how we communicate it, how we communicate it from generation to generation needs creativity. It's not an issue of theology. It's an issue of methodology that we need to latch on to. Let's learn some lessons from our time, all right? When I was a kid, I think M&Ms came in five colors at max. It didn't matter what time of the year. It didn't matter what holiday. You wanted M&Ms, you got five colors. How many of you right now have pastel M&Ms sitting around your house because Easter's coming up? 
You know, at Christmas, they're, they're red and green. And, and at, uh, I think Halloween, they're black and orange. You name it. M&M's has started marketing it to every holiday with the idea that you need M&M's every holiday. And look at the colors they fit. You see, the, the chocolate's the same. They taste the same as they did, you know, a long time ago. But the coloring changes the marketing. When I was a kid, Bart Starr was on the Wheaties box. Recently, it was quarterback Russell Wilson. Uh, why the change? Well, because Bart is not culturally relevant anymore, but Russell Wilson certainly is. And, and, and the Wheaties people are not trying to reach me with their advertising. They're trying to reach a younger generation to convince them that the same soggy wheat cereal is as good today as it ever has been. The church should be leading the charge when it comes to such philosophy. We must be biblically faithful, that's the contents, but at the same time, culturally relevant, that's the packaging. Let's be faithful to the word of God and effective in God's world with that message. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do this. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Paul is simply saying, I'm trying to become whatever I need to become. Now, he's not talking about compromising his morals he's just saying i want to be i want to listen be able to talk to whoever it is so that whoever they are and whatever their background i can still give them the gospel so invest creatively okay here's something else invest sincerely be yourself don't be a phony or disingenuous be yourself and be relational we talked about this last week you can't invest in someone if you don't have a relationship with someone okay so you have to be relational and be hospitable. Hospitality was a major expectation in ancient times. Robert Weber notes that in this post-Christian society and culture that we're living in today, the day will come, probably in the not too distant future, where our best networking, our best ministry, our best investment in a few will take place in our homes around our tables once again. So invest sincerely. And then invest faithfully. Our values state, we mentor across generations. Our mission statement reads, people helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. You see, we're talking about the future, we're talking about the past, tying it all together so that as many people as possible will come to know the Lord. And I'm here to tell you, there is nothing like, there is nothing in all the world like seeing somebody embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives that you've helped influence that your investment has paid off. Deion Sanders, the only athlete that I'm aware of to play in both the Super Bowl and the World Series and hit an MLB home run and score an NFL touchdown in the same week. Pretty, pretty awesome record there. Deion Sanders said, no touchdown, no home run, no stolen base, no tackle, no interception could compare to me leading someone to Christ. Nothing comes close. And he's right. When you know that somehow you have changed a person's eternal, eternal destination, that you've changed their, their forever, nothing, nothing is like that. So let me ask you again, are you spending time mentoring anyone? Are you helping anyone grow in his or her faith? 
Are you being mentored by anyone? Because mentoring works both ways. You know, we have things to offer, but we also have things to gain. We have things to share. We have things to learn. What are you doing to leave a legacy behind that will live on long after you do? Who will continue to live out your heritage of faith after you die? When I entered ministry, Brother Elsoff, my home preacher, who by that time had retired, he gave me some of his most treasured books in his library. One goes all the way back to its original first printing, 1861. Popular Lectures and Addresses by Alexander Campbell. Some of you may recognize that name, Alexander Campbell, as one of the founders of this movement that became the Christian churches and churches of Christ. I really treasure that book. It's got water damage now from when we went through the fire a few years ago. But I still treasure that book. And the other books that he gave me, they were important books to him. He gave them to me to encourage me in my ministry. He took the time to invest in a few of us boys and it made an impact in my life even though at the time I didn't realize it. I wish I could thank him today. I wish I could apologize that I thought he was so old today. <laughs> you may feel that your efforts are a waste of time, but they are not. And it's true, your efforts may not produce much of a harvest in your lifetime, but God never wastes an experience or an effort to advance his kingdom. It will make a difference beyond the scope of your imagination, maybe long after you're gone, but it will make a difference. So keep on investing in others for Christ's sake. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.